Anyone enjoy the series that we did on John? It was great, wasn't it? It was brilliant. So we took basically the first half of, of the Gospel of John, and we went through the seven signs of Jesus, essentially. Um, the second part of the book of John is the passion of, of, of the Christ, essentially. And so we're going to be picking up the passion of the Christ come Easter next year, I think it is, as a lead-up to, 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 to Easter Sunday. But today, we're introducing um, a thematic series in the Gospel of John, which is going to explore the I Ams, the names that Jesus used, um, and his own declarations and claims, and uh, of which there are many in the book of John. And so this is an introduction today, and um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring about what those names mean and what they mean for us, you know, as individuals and how they are personal to each and every single one of us. Um, so, so we're looking forward to exploring that, I'm sure. Anyway, why don't you turn with me to the book of John. We're going to pick it up in chapter 8, verses 48. Let me just give you some context around this scripture so you kind of uh, understand it a little bit more. What's happening is uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, we are in Jerusalem in the Scripture. A few, few moments or a few days before the Scripture happens, Jesus is uh, in Galilee, and he's actually with his family, with his brothers, and he is deciding whether or not to go down to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles. He's deliberating with his brothers. His brothers actually encourage him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, but there is essentially an arrest warrant out for Jesus at this time. He is keeping a low profile. He knows that the Jews want him dead. Um, he is not a loved man at this point of his ministry career. And so as he decides um, to go down, the Feast of Tabernacles just happening, and on the last day, he actually decides to go down to Jerusalem, and he sneaks in with his disciples. And as the festival is halfway through, it's a few days, Feast of Tabernacles, it's all happening in Solomon's temple, thousands of people are in Jerusalem. There's music, there's singing, there's dancing, there's lots of eating, there's lots of good things happening. Everyone is on a good vibe. And so halfway through this festival, Jesus decides to make himself known. And he appears in the temple courts and he begins teaching people. And he makes some really big claims about himself as he is teaching people. Um, and and of, obviously, he divides the crowds. Some people say, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the prophet? Um, could this be the guy that we've been, we've been waiting for? He's done all of these miracles. Nobody else has done all these miracles. It's amazing. Isn't he great? And uh, some of the Jews, they begin to challenge him. And then on the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in the temple courts with thousands of people surrounding him, and in a loud voice, he declares to all the people, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. If you believe in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from you. This is a bold and audacious claim that Jesus makes. And it's at this point that the temple uh, courts, uh, the, the guards, sorry, the temple guards, they run to the high priests and the Jews and they say, this has got to stop. This is enough. Now is your opportunity to arrest this man. He is blaspheming in the temple courts. Take him. So the chief priests 
and the Jews hatch a plan and the very next morning they conveniently find a woman who has been found in the act of adultery and drag her in to the temple courts and stand her before Jesus. And they say, so what are you going to do about this? We're going to get you now, buddy. And Jesus says, Famously, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, the Jews disperse. And this is where we pick up the narrative. Some other Jews begin to dispute with Jesus and challenge him to try and catch him breaking the Mosaic law. Are we up to date? Here we are. Now we are in chapter 40, in verse 48. It says, the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? That's fighting talk. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who does seek it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Whew, Jesus is getting feisty with the Jews, isn't he? At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, ha, 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 he will never taste death. They don't believe him for a minute. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think that you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, still fighting talk, isn't it, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. <laughs> but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You were not yet 50 years old, the Jews said, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus had answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Jesus, as your word is preached today, God, I ask that people would receive faith upon the hearing of your word. And that ultimately, Lord Jesus, you would take center stage, that you would be revealed and expressed to people today. And we thank you for the All Blacks victory this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Joe Wells, that wasn't a very con strong amen, was it? Um, have, you ever, have you ever met somebody or known somebody but only knowing them by their nickname and not by their real name. Has that, has that ever happened to anybody here? 
there's always one person in a group, isn't there? Like, there's always that one guy or that one girl in a group, and they've just got that nickname, and, you know, everyone knows them by their nickname, and nobody really knows their real name. Or, like, maybe you've, you did know it, but then you forgot it, but you just, you know, call them that name because that's their name now, right? Um, I, I've had some good nicknames over the years. Um, my name's Simon, so it often gets shortened to Cy. Um, Simo um, is, is, is one Australians often give me. Um, otherwise, Gibbsy or Gibbo or the Destroyer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of good nicknames out there that you could call me. Um, the G, I don't know. Um, I, was, I was talking to a friend this week, and um, he was telling me that um, there was this one guy in his group um, called Bill. And um, everyone just knew this guy as Bill. And he was all um, organizing a birthday party. And basically, he was arranging all his friends and sending out all of these emails. And this guy got um, an email from a man called John about the birthday party. And he was like, who's this John guy? And so he ended up going back to him and saying, um, "Can sorry, I'm not sure who you are. And, and the guy emailed back, John emailed back, saying, oh, it's Bill. It's like, how, how do you get from John to Bill? That makes no sense whatsoever. But everyone just knew him as Bill, right? Um, I went to a wedding the other day, and um, at the wedding, it was a beautiful wedding. My, my friend's name was Grace. And um, you, you know at a wedding, you get the proper names read out, the full names. And um, when her proper name got read out, Grace wasn't even her name. And it was all of a sudden like, we, all of our friends group, we just, we just all looked at each other like, huh? Like what? We've been calling, I feel like I've been lied to. Like we've been calling her Grace all these years and that's not even a real name. It was bizarre. Anyway, I remember again, once more, one more example. I was growing up um, in New Zealand and um, I was about 17 years old and we had this group of friends and there's this one guy we just called Butch. Um, and for whatever reason, nobody actually knew his real name. I think there were one or two guys who maybe did, but everyone just knew him as Butch. Even to this day, I still do not know his real name. It is just an absolute mystery to me. Could you imagine if I was like dealing with him on a professional basis, writing emails, dear Butch, you know? It makes no sense. <laughs> but in the same way that, that we give each other nicknames and we know each other by nicknames, the Jews did the same with the name of God. They gave God a nickname. And here's why. Let me explain. To really understand the significance of, of what is happening here, we're going to have to journey back into Jewish antiquity to try and find out what is going on. All the way back to the burning bush with Moses. Remember that moment in Exodus chapter 3? Moses finds himself before the burning bush. God speaks to him out of the bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt to free my people from captivity. Moses says, okay, I guess I can do it, but who shall I say sent me? And this is the first time in the biblical narrative where we get the personal name of God. And this is what he says. Tell them, Echyeh in the Hebrew, Echyeh, I am. And then he says, actually, when you tell them who sent you, tell them that Yahweh, the verb of Echyeh, he is or he will be, has sent you. Now, this was the personal name of God, given by God himself, almost as a signature at the bottom of a letter, handwritten. This is my stamp. This is who I am. I am who I am. Now, as the Jews began to document this stuff, they developed a, um, a reverence and an awe 
for God, so much so that they refused to use the name, the personal name of God. So as they began to write the biblical scriptures or the, or the, uh, the, the Mosaic scriptures, Moses you know, would write it and that sort of thing, they exchanged the name Yahweh for Adonai, which means Lord in the Hebrew. What they ended up doing, um, so whenever you see the word Lord, like in capital letters, you know, when you see that in the Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that is the Jews um, replacing the word Yahweh for Adonai, Lord, okay? And they ended up making a hybrid of the name, um, an artificial hybrid. So they took the word Adonai and the word Yahweh, and they merged the two names, which ended up as Yahuwah which is where, fun fact, which is we get where we get the name Jehovah from, which is actually an artificial hybrid of the words Adonai and Yahweh. little fun fact for you this morning, right? <laughs> Brilliant. There you go. There's your biblical history for today. Um, the reason I say this is because the Jews sort of gave this nickname to God, Adonai, because, because they wouldn't dare say the real personal name of God out loud because they so revered this name. This name was so sacred to them that they dare not, dare not say it. And so here, fast forward a few thousand years later to the temple courts where Jesus is standing before the Jews and he dares to say the name of God out loud. The audacity of this 33-year-old I'm 33 too. <laughs> the audacity of this man to say, before Abraham was, I am. Inferring the personal name of God. And this is where the Jews lose their rag and they begin to pick up stones and say, this man is a blasphemer. He must be put to death. Could you imagine the music stops, the hush comes on the crowd, people start whispering, my goodness, did he really say, hey, Yahweh? Did he really say the name of God? In the same way that I never really knew Butch's real name, <laughs> Many people in the, in the times of Jesus were in the dark about the nature of God. It was only really the Jewish leaders who picked up on this inference of Jesus. And they began to pick up stones and get after Jesus. But many of the people living in those times were disconnected. They were far from God in terms of knowing who he really is, knowing his nature, because they were distanced from his personal name. All they knew of this God was Adonai, Lord some distant, far-off Lord in a place very, very far away, having no immediate or personal impact to their lives whatsoever. And this is what Jesus came to change. It's in this scripture and in the way that he uses I am, the personal reference of God, that he in so many ways says, I, the personal God, am coming close to you. The Jews, they distanced themselves from the name of God. They said, no, we can't. But Jesus said, no, you can. I am coming close. I am drawing near to you. It's in and through the person of Jesus that we are brought close to God. 
you remember the times that we, that we um, remember the times many, many years ago, of course, um, that, that we um, didn't have Google Maps? You remember how we used to have to like go onto a real map and try and navigate our way? And then, we, do you remember that? Yeah, of course you do, because you're all much older than I am. No, I'm no. <laughs> sorry. Um, I, I remember that time even, you know, when I was like, um, you know, a teenager and stuff and I had to navigate and no iPhones or anything like that. And, you know, amazing as Google Maps is, I'm sure that Google Maps wouldn't be able to direct you to God's residence, would it? It wouldn't. I don't think Google Maps is that good, is it? I don't think Google Maps can get you to the place where God resides. And this is exactly why God had to come to us. Because we had no way of getting to Him. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus God drawing near to us, God coming close to us in the person of Jesus. Secondly, we see that the character and the personal nature of God is revealed in the person of Jesus in the way that he describes himself as the I am. Um, Paul puts it like this, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. When you see Jesus, you see God. This is what God looks like, Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those um, character, you know, those, those paintings that they do on South Bank and stuff, but they do the caricatures, and they kind of make really weird noses and chins and that sort of thing, and they um, emphasize all these the different features on faces. And this is not really an accurate picture of what, what Jesus came to bring us. You know, he didn't, he didn't bring us a caricature of God. He, he rather bought us the selfie of God, if, if you can put it like that. He, he, he showed us really, honestly, what God looks like, um, which is to say that, that when you see God, you see Jesus. What does God look like? What is God, how does God act? How does he behave? How does he treat others? How does he walk? Um, how does he talk? Um, how does he go about life? We see that all in and through the person of Jesus. He came to reveal to us the very image of God. The Bible says in the very beginning of Genesis that we were made in the image of God, but we know that through the biblical narrative that man was corrupted through um, his own decision to seek independence from God, and the, that, that sort of image of God was corrupted and, and flawed in some way, and it was Jesus who came to restore the image of God to humanity. And this is what we see in his person. We see the very image of God. I haven't looked at my notes, and I don't know where I'm going, but um, we hope we're going somewhere. Um, so in saying that he is the I am, he obviously makes this grandiose claim about himself. In doing so, he claims to be God, and I guess he sets himself up as the one that we need as someone that we do need. Um, I'm going to land soon, so I'm going to tie this up in a minute, but I'll, I'll call you guys up in a minute. Um, throughout the biblical narrative, many scholars and theologians um, would tell us that numbers play a reinforcing role throughout the biblical text. For example, six represents the number of man. Um, on the sixth day, 
man was created. Seven, on the other hand, is meant to, be, is meant to represent the number of God. Six represents death and futility, the number of man. That's where we get 666 from. And number seven represents the number of God, completement, completion, fulfillment. And throughout the Gospel of John, we see this reinforcing of the number seven throughout his narrative, which is really interesting because it's almost as if John sets Jesus up to be the seventh man, the person of completion. Excuse me. Person of completion. I told you that um, John supplies us with seven witnesses that testify that Jesus is the Son of God. He supplies us with seven signs, water into wine, healing of a sick boy, healing of a paralyzed man, the feeding of the 5,000, healing a blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead. And finally, he supplies us with seven declarations that Jesus uses about himself. They are the seven I ams. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And these are the I ams that we are going to be discovering as we go through these next few weeks and look at all of these different I ams. And it's ultimately through these seven I ams that we discover what our need is of God, which is ultimately spiritual life in Christ, isn't it? That's who he sets himself up to be for us. He sets himself up to be spiritual life to us. You know, I often think about it like this. If we needed more buildings, God would have given us an architect, wouldn't he? If we needed more money, God would have given us an economist. If we needed a political leader, God would have provided a political leader, wouldn't he? <laughs> a good one, at least. <laughs> if uh, we needed more technology, God would have given us an inventor. But we didn't need any of those things deep. Our deepest need is, neither of, is none of those things, should I say. Our deepest need is that we are far from God, that we are dead in our sins, and that we are in desperate need of spiritual life. We are in desperate need of salvation. So God sent a Savior. And this is the person that we find in Jesus. In these seven I am's, he sets himself up to be our all that we need, our spiritual need. Does that make sense to you? Um, so, I'd love for you to think about the next, um, the next few weeks from the context of these two things. That we are both consumers of his name, and that we are both, and that we are carriers of his name. We are consumers of his name, and we are carriers of his name. We are consumers of his name. I am. What does that mean for me? How does God meet, meet my need? The Bible says that we have an inheritance, a spiritual one, and we have much to gain. God has met all of our needs in Christ, and all we need to do is reach out and receive it. One preacher put it like this, hand, sorry, faith is the hand that takes. And so as we journey through these next few weeks, as we talk about these I am's of Jesus, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, so on and so forth. I love you to, for you to 
come with the, from the perspective of, okay, Lord, what, what, are you, what are you bringing into my life here? We are consumers of his name. We receive everything that he has for us. And then secondly, we are carriers of his name. Okay, now what does that mean for me now that I am a Christian? How, how, how do I carry the I am of God? How do I carry the name of Jesus in my day-to-day life? It was also in Exodus that we find an event um, where the Amalekites pick a fight with the Israelites. And um, basically, God tells Moses to go and stand on a hill and to lift up his staff above the valley of the Amalekites and the Israelites. And whenever Moses lifted up the staff, the Israelites would win. But, it, but whenever he would pull it down, the Amalekites would win. And so her and Aaron lifted up his arms in order that the staff might be lifted up over Israel. And God said afterwards, hey, Moses, I want you to build me an altar here. So Moses built an altar and he called it Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is a banner. What does that mean for us? We are carriers of his name and his name hangs over us like a banner. Hold it up over our lives. You know, in the early church in the Antioch of Syria, um, the Greeks um, around the church saw how the Christians treated each other, how they interacted with each other, and how they behaved, and they called them Christians. Christians, little Christs. And it was this name that was dubbed as those people who followed Jesus. They gave, they, they said, you guys like really represent this whole Jesus thing. Well, we're going to call you Christians. In the book of Acts in chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple and uh, they walk through this gate beautiful. They see this crippled man and the crippled man asked Peter, hey, would you give me some money? And he said, gold or silver have I not, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. He didn't point to his own name. He didn't point to the name of John. He didn't point to the name of the church, but he pointed to the name of Jesus. And he said, you know what? What I do have I give you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. The man picked up his mat and all, all chaos broke loose in Jerusalem that day. They were brought into the, into the temple. They were whipped and beaten for it, but they carried the name of Jesus. You know, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, I am, can lift people out of impossible situations. The name of Jesus, do we believe it? The name of Jesus can lift the head of the oppressed. The name of Jesus can set the captive free. The name of Jesus can offer salvation. And it's in this name that God has placed all authority and all power in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk, Peter says. We are both consumers of his name and we are carriers of his name. Like a banner over us. As we pray and as we take communion today, I'd love for you to consider what that means for you personally. The personal um, name of God, I am. I will be the bread of life to you. I will be your good shepherd. I will be the gate for you. I will be the way, the truth, and life for you. I will be. What does that personally mean for you as a consumer of what God has for you today? And secondly, What does it mean for you to be a carrier of God's name in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends, amongst your day-to-day life? 
What does that look like for you today? With heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, we thank you for everything that you've got to offer us today. It's not like we did anything special to deserve it. But we know that by your grace and by your mercy, by your great love for us, God, you have given us a fresh start. You've wiped away the mess of our past and you've given us a hope for the future. Jesus, we thank you for who you've shown yourself to be through your life, your death, and your resurrection. Today, Lord, we come humbly and confidently before you. We thank you for revealing to us the nature of God. We thank you for drawing close to us. We thank you for everything that we have because of what you did for us, God. And Lord, help us in our day-to-day lives as we walk out this Christian life. Help us to be a good carrier of you, of your name, to offer it to the broken, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, God. We thank you for everything you're doing amongst us today. In Jesus' name, amen.